Good afternoon, Radio Free Brooklyn. You're listening to another edition of Objection to the Rule Live. Coming up, it's been a busy week in politics with our new communications director for the White House, Anthony Scaramucci, really just causing all kinds of commotion in the media. Plus, health care, the latest vote failed, and we are going to talk about that. And we've had some developments in the fight to make the MTA better. So that's all coming up on this next edition of Objection to the Rule. Plus, we are going to be joined by our special guest co-host, Deanna Anderson. She's going to talk about some reporting that she's done in Brownsville and join us for the conversation. You can join us for the conversation as well by following us on Objection RFD on Twitter and Objection Free BK on Facebook. Hey, everyone. How are you doing? Welcome to this edition of Objection to the Rule. We have Violet Barron in the studio. Hey, Violet. Hey, Ari. And we have Deanna Anderson. Hey. Hi. Yes. So welcome to the show this week. There's... There's been a lot. There's just been it's been it's been a lot. So we're going to kick it off with the news and some of the big topics that have happened this week. Uh, President Trump was in the area speaking to some police officers on Long Island. He made some statements that have some people wondering why he's trying to get the police to be more violent. Basically, he made a what is some people are saying a joke, but he actually encouraged police officers to rough suspects up a little bit more when they're taking him into custody. Um, You know, he's been kind of criticized before for inciting violence, whether it's offhanded comments to his supporters about beating up protesters. And we knew what happened after that. Protesters were assaulted by some of his, you know, some of his um, not associates, but some of his supporters. And now we have him talking to the police. And the interesting thing about this is that the police departments around the country are rebuking these comments and saying that, no, we don't want to treat our suspects unfairly. We do want to follow the law. And, you know, that is kind of interesting uh, to hear, considering the talks about police brutality that we've had. So, There is an obvious desire to kind of change that narrative. What do you think about Trump's comments and their potential impact? Uh, We'll start with you, Violet. Well, it's uh, it's troublesome. It's it's uh, it's troubling that he would uh, suggest people use more violence or uh, uh, rely less on the law and more on physicality as a uh, means of, you know, dealing with crime but uh it's trump it's not that surprising (laughs) unfortunately right we're in this point like we shouldn't expect like decorum or you know we shouldn't expect what we've expected from basically any (laughs) other president we shouldn't expect things to you know those those Things that you there there are certain things that when you're in that role you just don't say you know because you know their impact because you know that you're a world leader and every word that comes out of your mouth or from your fingers has an impact you know but that's not where we are. Um, what did you think about about the president's comments, Dion? Um, as you mentioned, um, this is something that Trump has been known for before, so it wasn't really surprising when I saw. Um, Trump say to rough him up Mm -hmm. uh, when I saw that on my phone. But I think that it's um, good that police departments are actually like saying we don't want to do this because I feel like um, they need to take a stand because of all the police brutality that has happened. Mm -hmm. And they can't say like, 
okay, president, we're going to go with you and keep and well, rough them up. Absolutely. And one of the <laughs> big kind of complaints about these police organizations is they're unwilling to identify when some of their own are violating the laws. And they are, they're, you know, they're kind of unifying beyond behind that wall of blue. And this is really the first time, you know, they and not that they have any allegiance to, you know, President Trump, um, but this is the first time they kind of, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily against police or that idea, but at least standing up for the idea that no, our police are supposed to be protecting or serving. And this is not the, the message that we want to send out. Um, from the campaign, I remember the Republican National Convention, his acceptance speech, and him talking about wanting to be go back to law and order. And we all know what law and order is, especially being here in New York, um, having had former Mayor Giuliani. That was one of his big things with the broken windows policy. And that idea of law and order is really kind of like a it's like dog whistle language that says we're going to crack down on minorities, on marginalized people. And that idea is detrimental to community building. It's why we have such a high rate of black and brown people in incarceration right now. And so for me, it, it I feel like the effects are, are more than just okay, well, maybe more police officers are going to beat up on people. I feel like it's just a perpetuation of this industrial complex that keeps putting black and brown lives or or disenfranchised lives into the system. Um, my question about that kind of law and order piece is, what are the effects when we have these comments like this coming from the Trump, coming from President Trump? What are the what are the effects, the potential effects that you could see? I think um, for community relations with police, it will kind of distress those. I feel like mm -hmm. there's already a lot of distrust of police in people of color communities. And I feel like if police departments and their officers like um, take on the law and order kind of vibe, then there will be even more distrust and even more disproportionate policing mm -hmm. in communities of color. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so... I, I'm hoping that this is a signal um, because across the country, we know that police officers are evaluating their policies much because of the communities, you know, pressing and being visible and challenging these policies because there has been so many incidents of police initiated violence in the country. So I, I hope that this, you know, kind of putting it out there as a wake up call, say this, you know, if, if nothing else, it says this is what people think about the police and the police are responding and trying to change that narrative. Now, if they actually change the policing behind the narrative, then that'll be the change that we need to see. Um, but moving on to news out of North Korea, North Korea and the U.S. are seemingly taunting each other with some weapons to show their might after North Korea tested a missile um, that could potentially hit cities in the U.S. It obviously did not, but it was a missile that has the range to do so. The U.S. responded by flying some bombers over the Korean Peninsula. Like, ain't nobody got time for this. <laughs> like, this does not, you know, I guess the question of what do you think the effects are of playing this like tit for tat game with North Korea? What, what do, is there anything that we could possibly gain out of this? What do you think? No, <laughs> no, it's like total destruction right. is the only benefit. Right. Like, I don't, it, it, there's no logical reason for this except to 
you know, I talk about like my dick is bigger arguments to be very crude. And we'll talk about why we're being so crude a little bit later. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's like this need to show might just because. And, you know, this idea, this this notion that the U.S. has to always be this superpower and to show this might, I, I feel like is becoming more and more detrimental when we have someone like President Trump at the helm who is very erratic with kind of the way that he engages in these 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 issues right. that are are of international importance. Yeah. Um, Deanna, what do you think? It's dangerous to be playing around like this. I mean, this is his job, so he's not exactly playing, but it's something that I think <laughs> yeah, about Yeah, this is not game. This is real life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I think about a lot how there has not been a war on U.S. soil in a long, long mm-hmm. time. And mm-hmm. this kind of back and forth could lead to that. I mean, it's, I don't know. This is, you know, it's, you don't want to be alarmist, but you have to be concerned. Yes. You know, because you have to understand that there are so many things in play politically and economically. And then to go on and, and essentially taunt China for not doing whatever it is that you expected China to do. Um, it, it just seems like you're pushing buttons that you don't need to push. Right. And again, the question is why? Because there's so many other things to focus on. <laughs> Than this, you know, this strained relationship that we have or don't have with North Korea. And I, I don't know what the potential gain could be, except for we just want to show our might. What do you think about what is the potential impact to the relationships that we do have with China and with South Korea? Um, this kind of tit for tat arguing. It just strains it more because South uh, South Korea has the most to lose because, um, yeah, you know, Seoul is... Uh, very close to the border. Mm -hmm. So like a huge amount of their public population is very close to the border with North Korea. So like North Korea and Japan are the two like closest targets and like the places where most damage would come from for their warfare. Mm -hmm. So like us showing our might and, you know, like throwing our, our weight around just like puts them in more danger and puts our relationship with them in more trouble. It's, you know, it, it, and it's really a contradiction. Do you think when you go back again to the Republican National Convention and Donald Trump talking about wanting to put America first, wanting to really pull us out of the world stage and, you know, focus on issues here, job creation, all of those good things that people talk about in elections. Um, but then to go out and be, you know, kind of really, I don't want to say provoking, but kind of playing the game. Um, that could really, that could cause the escalation of this issue into something that none of us wants, which is is actual warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's again, it's something that we why because there are so many other things going on. You have to look at what are the political motives behind it, and that's that's really what I'm curious about. Um, so let's move on. Anthony Scarmucci. White House Communications Director. The Mooch. The Mooch. We (laughs) talked about him last week when the announcement was made that he would be um, taking over the communications team. Sean Spicer resigned. And we were like, we'll see what's going to happen. So a week happened. And in this week, he had an expletive-filled statement that he made to a New Yorker reporter that was published in the New Yorker because when you talk to reporters as the communications director of the, you know, the White House, you're on the record unless otherwise noted. And that's, you know, F-bombs and all. So 
the media cycle has been filled with kind of analyzing the statements and then you know we have very we we have very lax restrictions and none on radio free brooklyn as far as what we can say but if you work in major network news or if you work you know for local affiliates they're very very stringent standards because they're governed by the fcc so a lot of the things that he said in this interview could not be aired on television um but the the interesting thing about it is that he's kind of got this vendetta that he is acting out um, against these leakers, these so-called leakers. And, you know, he had rights previous this week or was, we don't know exactly if he resigned or if he left, but he's no longer, no longer with the administration. And uh, an associate press secretary, Michael Short, also resigned because Scaramucci himself leaked that he was about to be fired to Politico. So, how how can you one go out against leaks and then talk about somebody getting fired that you haven't even fired yet? Um, and this all goes back to the fact that he's really not a communications professional or expert. He doesn't have communications experience. He came from business. He made a bunch of money with a, a venture company and sold it to China of all places. And so he doesn't have that formal background in communications. It's not like, you know, even Sean Spicer had more experience in communications than this guy did. So what is the hiring? I guess this is a big question. What does the hiring of Anthony Scarmucci say about the White House? Because honestly, to me, it seems like he's a perfect mouthpiece for Donald Trump. Mm. <laughs> it's just like it, there's already chaos in mm-hmm. the White House and he's just adding to it. It's like, let's just have a party in the White House. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's. It is. It's more raw. We didn't know if it could be more raw, but it's more. It's more raw. It's more clearly just funneled from Donald Trump's head. Yeah, and I, it's almost like you know, with with uh, Sean Spicer and even with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it's like there's Trump, and it's like ah, and then they'll like mute it down a little bit, but it'll still be a little bit wild. But I feel like there's no muting with 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 um, the words coming from Trump to Anthony Scaramucci. It's just like whatever you get is whatever you get. Yeah. Um, do you think that's be I guess the question is, do you think that that is what do you think are the tactics behind that? To just make him more unfiltered. I'm not sure that there is. I, I feel like I ha- I've had a lot of conversations about how Trump is not being strategic about things. Mm-hmm. I don't think there really is a tactic yeah. behind it. It's just kind of going with the flow. It's like, did he just call <laughs> this dude? He knows he's like, yeah, hey, I want you to be the communications director. Come on over. And he's like, yeah, sure, bro. Come over. Like that is that that that's kind of what it feels like to me. What what do you think? Yeah, it's just it's like it's sort of tough guy like uh anti anti elitist, anti like, you know, like preparation mm-hmm. uh um uh you know He's not he's not fit for the role in any way that we understand it, which mm-hmm. makes him perfect for, you know, for Donald Trump in that role. Yeah. Shaking it up. Right. What do you think? Do you think there will be fallout? Do you think this was the better decision or, you know, because nobody liked Sean Spicer, let's be honest. Like he did not have a lot of friends, especially among the press, but not even in the administration. So is this a step up or is this a step back? It might be a step up, but I feel like 
they might need to get someone who is trained. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the thing is, you know, one of the decisions that he made is he is turning back on the cameras for the press briefing. So he is opening it up a little bit more. But then again, I don't know if that's just because he likes to be on television. He's been, he's made a lot of appearances over the past week, yeah. you know, so I don't know if it's, it's that, that kind of attitude or if it's really trying to act, open up more access to the government, which would be good, in, especially in this administration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm never one to like, I'm not a person that like doesn't like crude language. So I just thought it was really funny and really kind of unfortunate because there's, again, that sense of decorum. Like there's an expectation of the way that the White House communicates with us, the people, we, the people, whatever. And I we're now like, wait, no, they just going to talk to us any type of way. (laughs) They're going to talk to the press any type of way. They're going to do whatever they want. And so we're kind of in this new reality where we don't really know what to expect from the president and from the administration. And so it, I'm, I'm interested to see what the next week holds. I didn't get a chance to review the, I know he was on a couple of talk shows and they were talking a lot about this in the Sunday talk show, but I'm going to check into that because I'm very curious to know, you know, how he's retooling and reshifting after this first week where, you know, he's, he's got a lot, he got a lot, you know, and he did a lot. Um, We're going to end up on the discussion about the Affordable Care Act and the latest attempts by the Senate to repeal it, which failed, um, in a blaze of glory this past week in a late night vote. Um, John Senator John McCain cast the last vote to repeal the bill after casting a vote to allow it to go into further debate. So there was a lot of controversy about his decision to um, vote that way. Um, and then there were two senators that were very much um, supportive of the repeal from very jump that were that voted Senator Collins from Maine and Murkowski from Alaska were the other two um, that pushed that no vote over. So the first question for me is that do you think that the Republicans are done? Do you think they're done with this or do you think it's going to resurge around midterms time, you know, to rile up some more votes? Where do you think the ACA stands now? I think the people are exhausted, even Tired. even those who hated, yeah. you know, even those who hated the bill. They were like, oh, you're going to fix it. Great. So fix it. Mm-hmm. Nothing got fixed. You know, even if they weren't buying that, like, you know, millions of people would lose health care, even if that wasn't an immediate concern. Mm-hmm. The fact that they keep losing the vote. You know, there's only so much people can. Yeah. Take. Well, you got, you know, that in the kind of realm of saving face, like right. you, you just keep on trying and failing. It doesn't it's not a good look. It's yeah. not a good look. What do you think, Dan? I think they might try again, mm. um, but I feel like in order to get it passed, they're going to have to make a lot of changes to yeah. it because obviously they keep not having the vote. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that the voters are going to take this into account in 2018 when we're voting in the midterms and in 2020 when we're electing a president or possibly reelecting our current president? I hope so because this is something that they've been talking about repealing for a long time mm-hmm. and like they keep failing at it so the voters should <laughs> take this into account do you think, I think. that yeah I, i'm wondering if they're because i you know i'm not so like staunch aka aca to say it's perfect everything is great we should keep it as is and i know that there are there are states that have had issues implementing some self-inflicted some because of the dynamics of the marketplace right. um the, the bottom line is, is this and we were talking about this before the show is that we have to make a decision as a culture 
how important healthcare is to us. Is it a universal right? Is it something that everyone is entitled to no matter their economic status or their ability to be employed? Or is it something that we is is for those with the luxury of employment or money to be able to pay? I, I believe, you know, and this is my opinion, but I believe that it's in our collective best interest to ensure that people have access to the health care that they need so that they can be the best contributions to society. It's very hard to be your best self if you're sick. So why would we want sick people who aren't able to contribute if that's what you're really worried about? You know, people are always talking about, you know, health care is, is a drain on the system and people getting things that they shouldn't and it's spending so much money. But we're talking about keeping people healthy. And I feel like that's a priority for some, but not for others. There's this very individualistic idea, like, no, I want for me, like, I'm not going to take care of anybody else. Um, and and what who loses are the people that are, that are most, you know, disconnected from the ability to get this funding or the ability, you know, we live in New York where you can access healthcare relatively easily, but there's still a cost, you know, you, you, there's still a cost and, and they still have to pay your premiums and there's still these, you know, these barriers and issues with how you get access to different providers and things like that. So even if the system, the ACA, even if the ACA isn't perfect, we have to find a way that changing it doesn't cause people to lose the very critical care that they need. And I feel like that should be something that should be the first priority. But that's, again, my opinion. Um, I'm curious to know about what you think about the the fanfare over John McCain, because there was a lot of criticism of him when he made that yes vote. I mean, people went in and then he later voted no. And he was like held up as a hero. Yay, John McCain. He's the maverick saving us again. When these two female senators all along were like, hell no, hell no. So I, I'm curious to know what you think about how that narrative played out in the media. I think the fanfare was kind of ridiculous, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I feel like he shouldn't be held up as a hero because, in my opinion, I think that healthcare should be a right. So mm. it shouldn't even be like he shouldn't be held up on this pedestal because he voted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. For doing something you should have done in the first place. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's that's a lot like that, you know, people want participation trophies, that whole trope that is going around. That, that's yeah, kind of what yeah. that seemed like. It's like, oh, yeah, you just did this thing that, of course, we, we expect that you're doing what you expect. We should be looking to protect this. But and he, you know, John McCain as a as a politician has been not been a big supporter of Trump and, you know, but has always made kind of decisions along those Republican lines that have curtailed the progress of progressive ideas. So. I, you know, I don't know. I, I hope that we focus our attentions and energy somewhere else. Mitch McConnell did say that he's going to take up other legislative priorities. Um, and I hope that is the case because we've, I, I just wonder what the cost of this has been to try to repeal. Like who will have to look for that number? Because yes. I bet that number is ridiculous on who has, how much all of this has cost us to, um, to try to repeal because we didn't yes, actually reporters get, Ori is giving you a yes. story idea yes yes follow, you got it. follow that money <laughs> follow that money we're going to take a little break and play some music here on objections to the rule and we'll be right back in just a few moments 
Um, oh, there we go. I've got some good protest music for you. you know, I love my protest music right here on Rochester Rule. Make sure to check out all the shows we have on Radio Free Brooklyn. You can visit us online at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org and help keep us on the air by donating. You can do that by clicking on the big green pledge button. A little or a lot will help keep us on the air. We'll be right back here on Objection to the Rule in just a moment. That are built to defend and protect this bold heart This bold heart But the way you marched into my home Not few big army with a weapon on your arm Yes, you struck straight with your cold heart Your cold heart I'm like Nat, I'm like Nat I'm a man of God, but where is Christ at? And even though my name is Nas, I am like Nat is this me declaring war white flags? I now know why I was even born to strike back. A full moon up in the sky, that's a sign that it's time to get my liberation. A perfect configuration It's the birth of a nation. Midwife black, mother, father, Caucasian, my blood Indian native. So now I'm contemplating being like Nat. About to show you what I'm made of. I'm what races are afraid of. No mule in the 40 acres, and despite that, watch out for the traitors. And when they say make America great again, do they mean make us all slaves again? Don't sidetrack. victim no more depicted as a criminal especially when you're poor why doesn't the government order capital punishment to officers who racial profile and put slugs in us makes me think they want us to stink on the brink of insanity we're screaming for justice they send tanks demanding me demanding we protect the family anarchy who cuts planning him demanding he damaged me so my fantasy is every single one of us come against the evil divided people it's common sense the theory i hope the whole world hear me no justice so i became a revolutionary no matter if you're red white black if you want freedom then we're all like men
Let the spirit of Nat Turner live Forever Welcome back to Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. We had War by Nas, Trump is on Your Side by Moby. We're getting into our protest music. I love it. So in this segment, our big issue is the MTA, because how could we not talk about the MTA? We're a local show here in New York. And newly appointed MTA Chairman Joe Loda, reappointed, I should say, announced a big plan this week to overhaul the train system that transports millions daily, over 6 million riders a day. That's a lot of people. And is causing headaches for the region's commuters. Two derailments recently within the MTA system, the summer of hell across the region, and track and signal failures due to old, overused infrastructure caused a new focus to be placed on the city's transit system. But the fight who will pay for it continues. And Violet has a little bit more for us. 
Thanks, Ori. Uh, so this week, the MTA uh, under Loda uh, started phase one of uh, his two-phase um, NYC sub- subway action plan. Um, and so that uh, this phase will address what Loda considers to be the most pressing issues um, affecting the subways and its riders. Um, and it's scheduled to take place over the next year. So uh, it's going to include... Um, fixing signals and water leaks because, as we know, leaks are the most important issue facing everyone. <laughs> leaks are very, very important right um, now. Uh, cleaning stations, improving rails, overhauling cars, uh, removing seats on certain lines to allow for greater standing room, which doesn't sound terribly comfortable, yeah. but I guess it'll cram more Because everybody onto likes trains. to stand like, you know, <laughs> nuts to butts with everybody right. on the train. That's just wonderful. <laughs> I yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, fewer people want to sit. Um, and uh, increasing the number of cars on certain trains where there are stations long enough to uh, accommodate them. Are we going to get more G train cars so I we don't, don't have know. to like run to the, <laughs> the G middle. train? Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, and it like starts to stop where you are and then it, it just, it, it like, just goes. It's like, no, no, my bad. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, so um, the details of phase two, we don't know yet. That'll come in the next few weeks, apparently. Uh, but it's supposed to have to do with modernizing the system as a whole. Um, so uh, one problem that keeps coming up with this plan is money. Who's going to pay for it? Who is responsible for it? And uh, like lots of things involving city infrastructure, it's city versus state. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Loda insists that no matter what, uh, the MTA will press on with the plan. So we're going to start these uh, repairs and overhauls no matter who has committed to paying for it. Um, So here's a clip of him uh, at the press conference announcing the plan. Nice to see you. Um, So do you think that your sort of earlier argument, one in which you echoed the governor's contention that the subway was actually the city's responsibility, do you think that will in any way... um, make the mayor less willing to cooperate with you on this? And secondly, uh, nice to see you. Um, so do you think that your sort of earlier argument, one in which you echoed the governor's contention that the subway was actually the city's responsibility, do you think that will in any way um, make the mayor less willing to cooperate with you on this? And secondly, uh, can this plan move forward without city funding? So um, let me address two particular points. I never said the city was responsible. Go back and look at everything that I said. The city is not responsible. The city city owns the system. They've given it to us to run. I'm here to run the system as efficiently and as effectively as possible. I'm going to go to my partners at the state and go to my partners at the city and ask them to help fund the first year. I will do my very best to find efficiencies and revenues necessary to go out into the future years in doing that. It's as simple as that. So my, you know, the, the commentary that I heard was, as I said at the beginning when I stood in this room, I said, this is nothing more than a history lesson, and that's all it was. Because there are people who believe that this, you know, the MTA does not own the system. The assets belong to the city. There's nothing untoward in saying anything like that. Uh, it's just a recitation effect. Um, I, I, it, 
I'm, con I'm absolutely convinced we can move forward. I'm not going to say whether or not I can or can't do the funding. We need to get the funding somehow. I have the commitment of the governor for, for splitting half of it. I want to work with the mayor to see if I can get the other half. If not, I'll, I'll be on my way to Albany to deal with the legislature. But I really want to work uh, with our partners at the city. Uh, so Mayor Bill de Blasio and Loda disagree over who should ultimately fit the bill for the uh, foot the bill for the repairs. Um, so Loda uh, ultimately thinks that uh, the city and state should split the bill uh, more or less evenly. Um, but de Blasio says that the money should come from funds that uh, the state had uh, diverted from the MTA and is keeping in reserves. Um, here's Bill de Blasio at a press conference at, city, at the City Hall subway station. Let's be clear, as I mentioned, our $2.5 billion commitment is already there. But the capital budget that the MTA is working on right now goes through 2019. Money can be forwarded from that budget right now to address the emergency needs that Chairman Loda has raised. I want to emphasize that the money is in the budget and can be forwarded right now. To the operating budget, Chairman Loda's plan calls for $456 million in additional resources. It's quite an amazing coincidence that is literally the amount of money that the state of New York has diverted from the MTA's budget since 2011. So the answer is obvious. That money is available right now. It's in the state of New York's reserves. That money was originally slated for the MTA's needs. It's from tax revenue specifically for the MTA. That money, that $456 million should be returned to the MTA immediately. That will fulfill the needs that Chairman Loda has outlined as immediate. So uh, riding the subway is frustrating and difficult, especially if you need it to get to work, to get uh, wherever you're going for um uh, business or during the day in the city. Um, and uh, the plan is an attempt to address that, but it's not totally clear how effective or how uh, realistic the plan will be. Um, I'm curious what we think that the most urgent concerns right now for city riders are. We are the riders. We ride the trains every day. What What's the biggest problems, and is this plan heading towards a solution? Oh, so some of the things that I'm concerned with are timeliness mm -hmm. and train traffic. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm often just stuck on the bridge between Manhattan and Brooklyn and I don't know what's happening. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure. I know there in the plan there is like some efforts to fix signal problems. So mm -hmm. maybe that will help with those things. I think there was one. And to that point of like the train traffic, one of the things that Loda mentioned in that press conference was that he wants to revamp the communications that go out to riders mm -hmm. about the system, you know, make sure to raise the visibility of the apps that are available. So you know more about what's going on in the system before you go down into the platform. Um, and I think that that is a more tangible thing that I can see that will affect because sometimes you just don't know what's going on and knowing is half the battle. Right. So if you know that the B line is not running or you know that there's delays on the queue, you can make alternate you know, changes and you don't have to like go swipe your card, get down there, see all the people on the platform and then just be mad because then you have to either go up, re-swipe somewhere or wait 15 minutes, you know, if you use an unlimited card or you're going to spend more money, you know, so it, I feel like that the the piece of communication to me is is really important and just knowing what's happening but then also 
that understanding of what is the truth about what's happening. Because you mentioned those messages that you get. It's, you know, there's a, what is it? A, a sick passenger. There is train traffic ahead of us and signal malfunction. Um, police action. And, uh, police action. Yeah. and those four announcements pretty much cover every possible scenario that could occur on the MTA, but it doesn't give you any information. You don't know if you're going to be underground for five minutes mm-hmm. or an hour and a half. And when you're in a place like over the bridge going to <laughs> Manhattan or coming into Brooklyn or in a tunnel, which I hate being stuck in tunnels, it freaks me out because what are you going to do? And so, you know, I, I feel like that communication piece to me is really important, but reliability is intertwined with that. Because like you said, Violet, this is about getting people where they need to go. You know, getting people to work, getting people to school, getting people to do their daily business. And, you know, every, it's always like, it's a joke now that, you know, you're going to be late because the MTA is inevitably going to mess up. Like there's going to be a problem on your journey. Um, So I, I think that Fixing that reliability and that confidence in the system is vital. And the communications piece hopefully will do that. Because I think as as New Yorkers, we understand shit happens. Mm -hmm. And like we've ridden the subway enough to know that it's old. It is out of date. It is inundated with riders. I mean, that six million riders a day figure was daunting. That's literally like half the population of the metro area getting on the subway every day. And that system was not built for that much traffic. So I, that, that's my thought. Like, I really think it, the, the communication piece intertwined with the, the system reliability piece, or the, those are the big things. And then they keep on wanting to raise the fares. So it's like, we have to find a way that you're not gonna, in, you're not gonna burden us with more costs while you fix this system. Right, right. Uh, so I'm also curious how you guys think that um, money and responsibility should be divided. You know, we heard those two heads budding mm-hmm. uh, as politely as they could about um, whether city or state or uh, some other combination should be responsible. What? Who? Who's shirking responsibility here? <laughs> I think that they are playing into the fact that there is that, you know, dual creature of the state responsibility that is very, you know, kind of. I don't want to say problematic, but it does cause these controversies about funding, especially with these um, these organizations that are kind of bridging between different municipalities and different governmental structures. Um, the MTA is is really a unification of many different parts, and it, it works in conjunction with um, state organizations in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and, and Connecticut, and the whole area to kind of put on, you know, to offer these transportation options. And so it, it, it is an argument that I feel like keeps on perpetuating itself because this is always the way that the relationship between New York City and New York State has worked. They're always trying to figure out who pays for what. They're always trying to say, well, this is the state's responsibility or this is the city's responsibility. You know, all the decisions that are made with regards to the New York City budget, you know, are, are predicated on the state. So it, there, there's just this weird codependency that exists. And it's political, too. You know, it's very much political. Bill de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio has to answer to the eight, nine, ten thousand New Yorkers that are here. And Governor Cuomo has to answer to the New Yorkers, but also to the rest of the state, which those are not necessarily aligned as far as objectives are concerned. It's really hard to get somebody upstate to care about the MTA. You know, that's that's really seen as a New York City problem. They don't see the benefits of it. Um, But 
you know, these revenues, these, these, these city structures do provide a lot of stability to the state. Right. Um, so it's interesting because it's always, the, the, the answer is always different based on what the issue is. I think for the MTA, I think the MTA is such a boon for the region. I think it is, you know, it's one of those things that attracts people. People love the subway. It's a part of our infrastructure. And I think there should be joint responsibility to maintain it. Um, but I think that needs to be very transparent. And I think that it needs to take into account that, you know, these tax dollars, we, we contribute a lot as New Yorkers, we contribute a lot into the state budget. Um, and so that reciprocity is necessary to ensure that the New Yorkers get the services that they need because they're new, unique to New York City and may not be shared by the rest of the state. I don't know what you think, Deanne. I mean, you mostly said everything, <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I agree that there should be some shared responsibility. What that percentage looks like between the city and the state, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like both need to take some responsibility. Yeah. Hmm. I'm also curious if you guys think anything is missing in the uh, in the plan as it exists now. You know, first phase is like physical issues, and second phase is modernization of the trains. We're not sure what that means yet. Yeah. Is there anything as riders that they're not getting? I think I'm I'm curious to know how the community is being consulted about all these changes. You know, is there a community advisory panel? I know the MTA has to do public advisory meetings, right. just like most, you know, big structures within our government. But I don't know how much community input has been leveraged to make these decisions. So that's one question I have. Um, an ideal plan to me would, again, not raise costs for the rider, um, but would modernize the trains in such a way that we don't have to think about them. <laughs> like they're just going to be there. You're just going to be able to get on a platform and you know in three, seven, 10 minutes, whatever the interval is, there's gonna be a train there. You're not gonna have to stand on the platform for 30 minutes to wait for a train that you can squeeze your body into. You know, I don't know if y'all have been at the Grand yes. Central Terminal Station at rush hour, but you gotta pray to the Lord to get on the train. And, you know, people are pushing you out of the way and you have all these people on the platform. And so I think to me that comfortability, like I love riding the Metro North because it's comfortable for the most part. You know, sometimes it gets crowded and sometimes it derails too. But, you know, I feel like it's different because the ridership is different. The attitudes are different. It's less congested. Um, so I would love that experience to be across the MTA system. You know, just because you're getting on a subway train at rush hour doesn't mean that you should be packed in like a sardine. But then again, that that is the train experience in a lot of major train systems around the world. You know, you look at the trains in Tokyo or in, you know, other major metropolitan areas around the world, they're packed because they're busy and that's how they provide benefit. Um, but making it more comfortable and more reliable, those are the two things that really I think are important in this plan. And I hope that their choices, because I don't know, I don't know how to build infrastructure for the subway. So I'm hoping that they have the understanding that these core infrastructure changes that are they're putting in immediately will address the issues. Um, and I think that's the best that we can, that's the best that I can do because I don't know enough to know what needs to be done to fix it. I just need to know that it's not working right, right. now. And I feel that's where a lot of New Yorkers are. Right. Kind of related to consulting with the community, I think it might be important for the MTA to consult with um, 
different transportation agencies around the country yeah. and around the world to see what their best practices Absolutely. are. Absolutely. So I recently spoke to someone who's from London and she was very frustrated with the trains here because she's like the tube runs on time. Mm -hmm. So maybe talk to the people who run, run that. that. Yeah. <laughs> and and to be fair, that that ride is, you know, it's it's a pretty expensive ride on the tube in in London. I think it's it's equates to like 6 or 7 dollars um per ride. So is it a situation of you get what you pay for? Mm. And could New Yorkers afford to pay more? Again, we don't want to raise rates, but we are pretty cheap when it comes to, you know, subway service. Um, and so maybe it is it is a matter of, well, you're paying for it this way. So it's kind of what you get. <laughs> right. So uh, one thing I found interesting in this whole uh, issue is that Riders Alliance Executive Director John Raskin said that the biggest need in all of this is for a reliable and renewable uh, source of funding. So mm -hmm. something that won't run out and has its own means of renewing itself. Uh, for the MTA as a whole, in addition to the plan itself. So no matter how the plan is funded, we don't yet have that renewable sense of uh, source of income for mm -hmm. the MTA. So that's something to think about and search for. Absolutely, absolutely. And, that, you know, I think that will be vital to defraying the costs from the riders because inevitably they're going to come back to the riders and inevitably it's going to go above $3 and we're all going to complain. Right. Um, but I would like to see a mitigation plan so that it doesn't go to $4. It mm -hmm. doesn't go to $5. And I think one aspect is corporate involvement. You know, I feel like there we, we go into work, most of the people using the subway every day. So why aren't companies paying more? I believe in that corporate responsibility to help build this infrastructure. And I know Loda um, talked about that as a part of the plan, possibly selling rights to naming rights, more subways. But in addition to those naming rights, you're going to pay to fix that station, you mm -hmm. know, which I think is, is an amazing idea. Will yeah. businesses go for it? I don't know, but right. I think it is a, it is a good way. Right. And how do, how do we sort of uh, control that? So companies aren't exactly owning the trains themselves. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that could be a whole different thing. Right. Um, having them on the train. So we're going to play cool. another song. Thanks so much for that, Violet. And we'll be back with Deanna talking about her reporting in Brownsville and how they just said, well, if we're going to change our community, we're going to change it. We're not going to let other people change it. So we're going to play this song from Common here in just a moment right here on Queer, or I'm sorry, on Objection to the Rule. I haven't done that in so long. We're getting there. We'll be right back in just a moment right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Southern leaves, southern trees we hung from Barren souls, heroic songs unsung Forgive them, Father, they know this not as undone Tied with the rope that my grandmother died Pride of the pilgrims affect lives of millions In slave days separating fathers from children Institution ain't just a building but a method of having black and brown bodies fill them We ain't seen as human beings with feelings Will the U.S. ever be us, Lord willing? For now we know the new Jim Crow The stop, search, and arrest stop souls Police and policies patrol Philosophies of control A cruel hand take it hold We let go to free them so we can free us America's moment to come to Jesus
sings for freedom to ring. Black bodies being lost in the American dream. Blood of black bean, a pastoral scene. Slavery still alive, check Amendment 13. Not whips and chains, I'm subliminal. Instead of nigger, they use the word criminal. Sweet land of liberty, incarcerated country. Shot me with your ray gun and now you want to trump me. Prison is a business, America's the company. Investing in the justice, fear and long suffering. We staring in the face of hate again. The same hate they say will make America great again. No consolation prize for the dehumanized. For America to rise, it's a matter of black lives. And we gon' free them so we can free us. America's moment to come to Jesus. Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Letter to the Free by Common. Yes, I love it. Love it. So we are joined with our guest co-host, Dion Anderson, Next City Fellow, and she's been doing some reporting in the Brownsville community where leaders have set a path to preserve their community in the face of gentrification. She joined us more to talk about that initiative. So thanks for coming on, Deanna. We always enjoy having you. Thanks for having me. So the last time you talked about a community market in Flatbush and the situation in Brownsville is about putting systems in place to revitalize that neighborhood that maintain the integrity of the community. So can you tell me a little bit more about that plan? Yeah, so the plan was kind of uh, spearheaded by the Department of Preservation, Housing and Preservation um, in New York City. Basically, they have brought together uh, community organizations and spoken with about 500 residents in Brownsville to kind of outline what they see in the next decade or so uh, to help maintain the community there. And what are some of the ways that this plan is going to prevent some of the drastic changes that typically come with gentrification? Oh, so one of the things that uh, one of the, ooh, let me just make sure I'm saying the right organization, (laughs) Uh, the Central Brooklyn Economic Development Corporation, uh, they are, they have a uh, Brownsville Gateway, which is basically trying to make sure that the organizations in the city, in that community have enough money to run. um, Mm -hmm. And that they're able to stay there as the community changes. <clears throat> and there's also another organization called the uh, Brownsville Community Justice Center. They've been actually doing work in the community for years. And they are trying to help 
businesses on Belmont Avenue, which is a major thoroughfare in the neighborhood, uh, survive as well. And I think that's really the key is that, you know, the comp- they're not trying to bring in new businesses by asking new people to come and invest. They're trying to get people to invest in the old businesses and help lift them up yes. and help maintain them in the community. What are some of the next big steps that we're going to see out of this plan? So for one, this is also a plan that will be bringing affordable housing mm. uh, to the community. So, I mean, the affordable housing conversation is a whole other thing, but we're hope they're hoping that there is a way to make sure that the community stays there. And um, they're also trying to make sure that the businesses, uh, people there are able to start businesses themselves. Um, so there is a... Uh, business and entrepreneurship uh, site that's going to be under some affordable housing coming in as well. Um, So basically, one of the women who I spoke with for this story, she is on the community board there, and she's trying to make sure that uh, the Department of Planning and, no, the Department of Preservation and Housing um, make sure that they meet with the community on a monthly, not monthly, sorry, I'm misspeaking right now, Uh, on a quarterly-ish basis uh, to make sure that the plan is on track. Sounds awesome. And then before we let you go, because we're almost out of time, I want to know if there was one big need that the community had, uh, what was it? Making sure that people are um, able to afford housing. Like, that's a major thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the median household income there is about $25,000. A little more which than is, half of the average. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard to um, stay in the community if you can't afford housing there. Absolutely. And that displacement because of an affordability is really what drives these shifts. You know, these um, developers are coming in, they're rehabbing, they're raising rents, and then people are getting pushed out. So the idea that we're also putting in place something that will help to make it a little bit more affordable, you know, even though we know about that affordable moniker, you know, is is always going to be good for the community. Thank you so much, Deanna, for sharing that with us. We appreciate it. We're going to definitely have you back because you're doing such good reporting at Next City. So I thank you for that. Thank you for Violet. Thank you for coming on the show and giving us your insight on the MTA. And I thank you all for listening here to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Make sure to check out What is Love coming up right next after us here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Objections the rule.